0: Today's show.
1: So we were in this weird position. We had a few million dollars in the bank and this big team and we were basically like uh shut down. Yeah. And so the question was like, uh, all right, what are we gonna do? And so we called one of our board members, Mike Maples, who was the seed investor in Twitter and had built some really cool companies on his own and uh kind of laid it out to Mike and and Mike's like, Well guys, like build something else. (laughs) That's amazing. We're like, Well, Mike, like we just learned that, like the business like can't work and like it's illegal maybe and he's like oh yeah I don't care like he's like listen mm-hmm. what's most important about building a company is you got to build a great team and your assets you have really are your team and your learnings and you guys have had to build you filed like 32 provisional patents you built this team you've gone through the ringer and all these things you learned a ton of stuff and you have a team so let's build something else
0: 5 4, four. Why? Welcome to the Creator Institute podcast.
1: Your host, Erin Foster.
0: How's it going, everyone? This is Eric. And on today's episode, we get the chance to talk to Evan Bayer just days after his company Able was acquired. Uh, Evan is is the author of, of a really interesting book, one of the few books that I recommend about startup and venture capital pitching called Get Backed that became a bestseller. Um, and we'll hear in, in his story a little bit about his rationale for why he decided to create a book, especially in the midst of starting a company, the impact that it had on his trajectory. And ultimately, we'll hear a little bit about how Evan went from having these aspirations to be in politics, to realizing that maybe there's opportunities and in, in startups and capitalism, and then settling somewhere in the middle. Um, what I think is fascinating about Evan's story is he has had kind of a lot of the traditional boxes checked. He's uh, he's been someone who's been to the best schools, Yale, Princeton, Harvard. He's studied with some great people, and yet here he is saying. I think that I need to continue to learn and continue to find and dig in. He's incredibly dynamic. I've had uh, the great privilege to get to know him. He's now starting his next adventure, working on uh, teaching it at University of Texas at Austin. And we talk a lot about his experience of co-authoring a book with his partner, uh, the other Evan, who we'll we'll preview on another episode uh, down the road. But I think it was interesting hearing him talk about the outcomes, the challenges that he had. And ultimately, we'll talk a lot about his strategies to market his book. We don't spend a lot of time um, when we think about creating something about the marketing angle, but his documents that I'll share with everyone about how to actually market a book were terrific. And I think it shows what happens when you say, listen, this book is something I'm using to build a brand to build name recognition and to get it out there, and and you've seen Evans plastered all over the place with their book Get Backed. I think you're really going to enjoy the interview with with Evan, and and I would say it's something perfect for someone who's sort of trying to understand when they're busy with everything else why it may make sense to find that 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 partner, that project, and and take a stab at creating something great. Um, Evan Bayer, everyone, the author of Get Backed. Evan, excited to have you today. Now this time after our second try, we've got you and uh, and I'm super excited to chat with you. You and I have been friends for a while now and I sort of got to see your adventure through launching a book while running a company and all of the magic that went along with it. And you've had a lot of news over the last few days. So super excited to, to, to spend some quality time with you.
1: Well, hey, honestly, it is fitting that this is our second attempt at this podcast. One of my favorite definitions of entrepreneurship or of a great CEO is you... Uh, wake up in the morning, you throw yourself in the right direction, fall down on the ground, and get up as fast as you can the next morning. And the guy that can do that the most times in a row is the guy that wins. So um, this podcast may take five or six attempts, but like we're going to do it. And we're going to throw ourselves downstairs, whatever it
0: takes to make this happen. Um, do it. And I heard it, it, you were talking, you were sharing earlier that you're even game to learn new sports like archery. And if you get shot by an arrow, you get up and keep going. Like you're like Hunger Games over here.
1: A little bit. I mean, I think, was it Tim Ferriss calls himself the human experiment or something? Yes. I'm not like that extreme. I don't do bizarre, you know, cleanses or anything like that. But my wife points this out mostly as a compliment, but sometimes as a frustration, which is that I am insatiably curious, which Mm. is said as the friendly way. The other description of that is like, very nosy and won't stop asking questions. And so anyway, I love meeting new people and getting to learn by asking people questions. And it's just much more fun for me than kind of sitting and reading a book for a long time. So a podcast, I'm uh, sitting here, I've got a handful of different USB mics. Uh, We set up a little recording studio at our house. I've got like the ESPN style sportscaster headset, like I just buy cool things that let me tinker and learn new stuff. So, anyway, long-winded way of saying thanks for having me. Of
0: course, of course. And so, uh, we're going to talk a lot about the book here, but I, but I sort of want to want to tee up a little bit of taking folks through your adventure because I think there's a few little stops along the way that are uh, some good fodder and color. So, I want to start with: is you look at your career trajectory? As I was like looking back at it, there's this like you know, there's this earlier, younger Evan who looks like he was on track to be president of the United States. So I want to hear about the early days of you and kind of government and politics. And and I want to hear about this run for city
1: council. Oh, man, Uh, I think I'm going to need a whiskey and a couch for this (laughs) one. This will be fun. Well, uh, yeah, I used to want to run for office and then I met myself and uh, (laughs) no. Um, So quick version of it is I grew up in a, a beach town in Florida, and honestly, growing up, the only person I knew in business was the owner of a local car dealership, and I wasn't particularly into cars, and so I just thought of business was selling cars. Mm. And it wasn't until even after college, to be honest, that I started meeting people in the world of entrepreneurship. So that explains kind of the late start of thinking about building companies because I just didn't really have any exposure to it on the other side, which was sort of the political government front was I grew up with a down the street neighbor was Joe Scarborough, uh, who Mm -hmm. was our member of Congress and later, uh, you know, media phenom. And I kind of thought that if you cared about the world around you, what you did with your life was stuff related to law and government. And that was just a, a worldview that I didn't know any alternatives. And that one seemed pretty good. And so I really ran after that, did a lot of debate. And public policy stuff in high school and then in college spent all my summers in college in Washington DC working on public policy and found that work uh largely pretty interesting so your question about the city council run so Princeton I was at Princeton University for undergraduate and there is a little town of Princeton and there is a city council as it were technically a borough council uh because New Jersey has boroughs not cities and uh The history was that no students had ever been elected to the borough council and a few additional issues were coming up for uh, what we called town gown relations, which was how well does the university deal with the town? And largely many of them were things like if you were really drunk on Main Street (laughs) as a student. Like, could you be arrested? Right, right. You know, was like the question. Yeah, yeah. And would you be on the governance of the university police or the real police? I mean, that was like the most important so, question. Hypothetically, so, you so find out the answer to that one. Just hypothetically, of course. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll <laughs> just kind of uh, an investigation. You know, so um, I was really involved in like student government and campus politics and uh, student council and all those kinds of things. And then also kind of got involved in in statewide political stuff of joining some campaigns and uh, I went to this little borough meeting uh, and it was the Princeton borough Republican club meeting, which was like nine octogenarians who were like, we need a candidate for city council. And I was like, this is crazy. And anyway, pieced together this idea. If I got all the students to vote for me and I got all the Republicans in the town, which was like meaning like both of them, Mm -hmm. then I could win feasibly. Um, and so set out and, and ran this campaign. Did you do we
0: have like a slogan that was like, you know, does do something like I got to hear you, you're like a marketing guy and, and, and you like you get the word out. What was the slogan that uh, that you would chant? What, what can I chant whenever I see you going forward?
1: Well, let's be clear that. I did not win, which may <laughs> explain be explained by my lack of marketing savvy. So what was the slogan? I mean, that we printed a bunch of yard signs and a bunch of stickers, and they were basically bare for council, mm-hmm. <laughs> as mm-hmm. inspiring as that is. <laughs> and um, I mean, kind of what was interesting from a marketing perspective there was, so it was a partisan election. Technically, many city councils are not Partisan, But this was partisan so you actually run as, you know, affiliated with Republican or Democratic Party. And not surprisingly, most of Princeton students are Democrats and never vote for Republicans. And so the marketing challenge was sort of like, can I actually persuade someone like, all right, you know, Eric, I know you're a lifelong Democrat, you're never going to vote for Republican, and that's okay. You have a choice in front of you, which is you vote for this old guy Democrat in the borough who is annoyed at the university and wants fewer kids doing stuff in town. Or you vote for me to represent right. students on the council. So that was kind of the challenge to get people over the hump of voting for the first time, which is on a on a straight party ticket election ballot is very difficult because – At New Jersey at the time, there were literally two levers. There's like Mm -hmm. a lever at the top of the Democrat column and a lever at the top of the Republican column. Mm -hmm. You pull one lever and it votes straight down the ticket for you. So down ballot, meaning like lower level elections, it's really hard to get people to cross parties there. Um, So to jump to the punchline, um, we got the whole school united. We were all excited. We uh, organized buses to get a lot of students out to vote in this spirit of civic engagement. And it's really important to get everyone out. And the day of the election, the university president cancels the buses. No way. Driving turnout way down to like a third of what we anticipated. And I lost Ah. by a significant margin. It's a good news though, right? It's a good news, bad news story. Oh yeah. I learned so much from that whole thing about bipartisanship and rallying troops and managing volunteers, messaging. uh, I mean, all kinds of things were super interesting through that whole experience. One kind of cliche learning that everyone says you'll learn if you run for office is that um, what most people care about is their sidewalk in front of their house. Right. So it's like you knock on the door and it's like, hey, I'm Evan Bear. I've built this whole plan on town gown relations and this alternative tax scheme when property comes off the tax rolls. And they're like you see that crack in the sidewalk out there? (laughs) I mean, in the winter it ices over and it's like really dangerous. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? But it's like in product management, they say like you talk to five customers and you think they are crazy. And you talk to 10 customers and you realize you are crazy. Right. It's one of those kind of deals. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so that was the, you know, we'll call it the, the, the early peak or uh, in trough of, uh, of your, your political aspirations. And I want to, you know, I, I read a, a little quote that you wrote when you uh, when you testified before the uh, the House of Representatives. You said um, to the to the the representatives, "I wanted to be you. Um, I believed public policy was the best avenue for social change. I no longer believe that, and I wanted to share why." And you uh, you introduce them to a man who sort of influenced your thinking about innovation. So, you want to tell us a little bit about. That that man who who influenced uh, in some ways your kickstarted your your path into 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 entrepreneurship startups.
1: Yeah, well, I mean the real story was once I experienced the breaded nugget. Dan Cathy just introduced me to the new way of of Chick Fil A as this innovative. <laughs> oh, wait wait hold on, sorry sorry that's the wrong guy. That's a wrong different story. Guy. I do I do love Chick Fil A though. I mean I it's mean, just so. It's so tasty. Okay, it's- time for another story. Okay. So, yeah. So that guy is a guy named Peter Thiel. Uh, I will presume all your listeners know. Peter, uh, most famously probably, was the seed investor, kind of discovered Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. and invested in the earliest uh, Facebook and uh, has done all kinds of things of being a co-founder of PayPal and building Palantir and early investor in lots of really successful companies. And Peter's story is interesting though. So Peter um, went to Stanford undergrad, Stanford law school clerked for Edmondson uh, on the 11th circuit, wrote a book and in a lot of ways was in this kind of similar worldview of the way to change the world is through law and public policy. Mm-hmm. And um, he was, uh, selected to interview for a Supreme Court clerkship, which is kind of your nadir of uh, legal elite uh, performance. And he didn't get it. He got the interview and then did not get the clerkship. Um, for him, it was kind of one of the first times maybe he'd ever not- Ever failed, right? Right, exactly. So he calls his friend Max, kind of devastated. And he's like, Max, I didn't get this thing. You know, what am I going to do? Um, and and the quick version of the story is Max like, well, I'm starting this company, like, why don't you come work on it with me? And that was PayPal. And so Peter was kind of, you know, had he gotten that clerkship, um, you know, he may have drifted off into obscurity of some, you know, regulatory lawyer or something. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I really appreciate that. So I I met Peter, actually, uh, several years out of undergrad, I was back in grad school, at Yale where I had gone to go to divinity school and law school, whole separate story. It was not that interesting, probably. Um, and anyway, met Peter through some mutual friends there. And, um, by getting to spend time with Peter and learn his story and good conversations with him, uh, became a, a believer in, a attempted protege of this idea that it is the corporation that is the best mechanism for organizing capital to deliver on really any goal that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, So what kinds of capital? So capital is uh, intellectual capital. So the ideas themselves, it's human capital of the people doing the work. It's financial capital to make it possible, political capital to pave the way, to make things legal. Um, All that capital is you got to organize that stuff to do things in the world. And so your kind of question is like, well, how are you going to organize that kind of capital. And he would argue that the form of the corporation, you know, the legal entity, but also the idea of the corporation is the most effective way of organizing that capital in order to deliver a scaled uh, outcome. And which sounds kind of like technical and and a little bit dry. Um, But let me give you, let me give you an example of this. So recently an interesting long conversation with Michael Dell uh, who is He's worth $35 billion, obviously founder of Dell Computers. And his lifelong passion um, from a a sort of social cause perspective has been around child poverty. And so he has this very large foundation that has put, you know, invested or donated money mostly to hundreds of organizations. And then they study them to kind of figure out what are all the things that work to actually reduce child poverty. And basically, what he concluded was that uh, for-profit investing of their money uh, is not only good because they get the money back with a return; it actually delivers on the goals more effectively hmm. than giving the money away. Interesting. And so, from his perspective, he would rather put, uh, you know, twenty million dollars into a for-profit alternative high school privately run program that like charges kids money to go get a degree, then give $20 million to a direct poverty alleviation program that would uh, give out soup to homeless people. Now, there are probably cases where pure philanthropic activity is needed. But when you really put how do people perform on the same goal? And a for-profit structure versus a non-profit structure, Michael Dell and Peter, and I think others, would really side on the for-profit side of things. And the last thing I'll mention on this is it really shifted my view because I used to think of, oh, well, why is business good? I think business is good. Business is good because when people make a lot of money in business, then they use that money to do good things, like give it to Habitat for Humanity. Yep. and. I actually realized that's totally wrong. Now, if you happen to make a lot of money and you're privately wealthy, I like the idea that you give 10% of your income away. And if you make a lot of money, I think you should give even more of it away. Right. That's a good thing. But what I had missed was that the actual operations and activities and wealth creation of the for-profit company itself was the ultimate good, hmm. not the intrinsic good or the instrumental good yeah. of creating wealth for the owner.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is fascinating, and I think it's 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 you know it's an interesting thing too that even when you look at like Bill Gates with and and Warren Buffett, two of the you know pent ultimate you know entrepreneurs have have sort of realized that the Gates Foundation, which operates a lot like a, you know a, a for profit entity, just with a different mission behind it, is very much data driven and focused on impact and outcome as opposed to sort of the traditional metrics that we oftentimes look at. Really interesting.
1: So. Totally agree. So, dropped that. Met Peter, learned about that worldview, and that really challenged me. And I was just kind of at this inflection point of like, am I going to become a lawyer? What am I going to do? Um, and then got to go build this uh, data company, kind of working for and with Peter um, as like this bizarro first introduction to entrepreneurship. <laughs> and I was just like blown away. Like, this is fascinating. You take risks. You try stuff that uh, you know is. Likely to fail. Yep. It was just a totally different way of thinking, which um, I personally came to appreciate a lot more at the general level. But also, a lot of should you be an entrepreneur, or whatever, has a lot to do with your own skill sets and giftings and what do you feel passionate about. For me, operating in the context of uncertainty right. uh, makes me go crazy, but I love it. I, I can't. Yeah. I don't think I could do anything else.
0: Yeah, and so that led you to to get one of the most the perfect sort of launch. Articles ever about your uh, future company going postal. So tell us about your uh, your experience of of launching a a company to in some ways do what you were just talking about to sort of become more of a, a sort of a for profit entity attacking a traditionally sort of social services government problem. So
1: I was in business school, so I built this company working for Peter, later thought business school would be interesting, which it largely was, met some really fascinating people there. And a good friend and I were really interested in the work of Clayton Christensen, who kind of coined the phrase disruptive innovation, but more importantly, built this kind of massively groundbreaking set of theories about how disruption happens. And so how do we explain that? roughly, uh, of the Fortune 100 companies, I think five of them were there 100 years ago. It's like super interesting to look at how that all gets destroyed. So we were interested in that topic, and we're interested in saying, okay, given that view of the world, how would you think about finding an industry that ought to be disrupted and build something specifically with the goal of disrupting it? And to add another layer to it, uh, my good friend Will Davis, said, you know, he was super interested in government inefficiencies, you know, lots of conversation about government waste, and etc. And so we kind of thought about different parts of the federal government and said, where could there be a better private alternative to something that the government does poorly? And uh, we had both had a bunch of experiences with the Postal Service of (laughs) we moved a lot, you know, you forge your mail, you get someone else's mail, you lose stuff, Um, just a pretty rough experience overall. And we were like, That is in the target and let's run after it. Let's build something. So we spent a summer really using a lot of design thinking approaches out of the Stanford D school, which has a lot to do with customer ethnography and understanding, which is like, all right, let's set out and sort of try to learn about this problem. How do people think about postal mail? What do they like about? What do they not like about it? What jobs to be done, which is a Christensen concept, what jobs to be done Mm -hmm. do people have with the postal service? that are not being met. Um, we spent a few months kind of doing some prototyping and said, all right, we have an idea of what this should be. Let's build an alternative, um, which led us to put together a deck and to raise capital and build this company to uh, create an alternative, which was called Outbox.
0: And, but out, you know, the crazy part about it is that's like one of those people talk about there's not enough big hunkin' ideas out there. I mean, you're taking a big and idea. The postal service, you know, is a global phenomenon in a lot of ways, connecting all these international places you know, did you were, did you ever, like, did the enormity of it ever sort of get you to pause and be like, wow, this is, we're biting off way more than we can chew here.
1: You know, uh, it felt big because everyone we talked to had some pretty extreme reaction to it, hmm. um, which was great, which was, like, exciting. It made it fun to talk about. I think it made it easier to raise capital. Like, most people have some horror story about, the postal service. And so in that sense, it felt big. It was, you know, many interesting, important companies today, like they're not publicly conversationally interesting because they solve some narrow particular problem. So it felt big in that sense. Um, and yeah, we kind of knew we were setting out on something that was going to be really hard to make work and, uh, you know, face pretty decent odds of, of not working. Mm -hmm. And then,
0: uh, it sort of didn't, I guess, is sort of the, is maybe, maybe the way to talk about it. But you you sort of, uh, you, you had this this moment where you, you sort of said, well, maybe there's
1: something else we can do. Talk about that moment. So we built the app, which was basically like uh, Google Voice for postal mail. So you sign up for us, you never go to your mailbox again. You'd get all the postal mail that was to come to your house. You would get it scanned like in a... Dropbox or Evernote-like application on your mobile phone or on the web. And you could have stuff shredded, you could have stuff stored uh, forever digitally, or you could actually request the physical copies. So that was a stage one of the product. So we built all this operational stuff of trucks and scanners and depots and a bunch of uh operational components to make the whole thing work we're scaling we're launching we're getting decent customer traction and then we get this call from the postmaster general you know <laughs> who oversees 600,000 employees and <laughs> 250,000 vehicles and they have a, a police force of 6,000 people that you know is crazy it's like a, it's a massive huge entity and in this conversation where we thought we were gonna ink our like big expansion deal, yeah. uh, he basically says, well, two things. The head of innovation, seated to his right, says, the problem with Outbox is no one will want it because digital will only work in Europe. And we were just like, what? how does that even make sense? Like your job <laughs> is digital innovation, like for your own sake, right. bro. Like, don't <laughs> sandbag your own <laughs> right. title. Um, and then the postmaster was interesting. I mean, he's a smart guy, and I understand it. I'm not sure I would really think about it differently were I him. But he said, "Well, the problem is the people you're serving are are not our customer. Um, you're serving the American people, and the American people are actually our product. And we sell access to the American people to hmm. the volume mailers. Interesting. And what you're trying to do actually flips around and sorts a different." Customer, and so like, of course, we can't do that with you. We can't serve you directly. Huh. So that was the That's end of a that That's, That's a fascinating, fascinating
0: insight. You could, I mean, I don't. You probably could have never figured that out unless you really made them sweat a little bit enough to sort of admit that to you. Even
1: yeah, well, I mean, I appreciated his honesty. I mean, he could have done it a lot of different ways of basically saying, you know, offer any of fake explanations as to why they don't want to partner or just sandbag the protocol or whatever. But he was really honest, which is super helpful. So we were in this weird position. We had a few million dollars in the bank had this big team. And we were basically like, uh, shut down. Yeah. And so the question was like, uh, all right, what are we going to do? Right. And so we called one of our board members, Mike Maples, who was the seed investor in Twitter and had built some really cool companies on his own and, uh, kind of laid it out to Mike and, and Mike's like, well guys, like, Build something else. <laughs> That's amazing. We're like, well, Mike, like we just learned that like the business like can't work and like it's illegal, maybe. And he's like, oh yeah, I don't care. Like he's like, listen, hmm. what's most important about building a company is you got to build a great team, and your assets you have really are your team and your learnings. And you guys have had to build. You filed like thirty-two provisional patents. You built this team. You've gone through the ringer and all these things. You Get learned after. a ton of stuff, and you have a team. So, build something else. So, to Mike, it was just a no brainer yep. that you just keep the money that you have and you go build something totally different. Um, and so, with that kind of permission, it was like around a holiday, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago. And um, we called every investor, which we had done a, a small portion through an angelist syndicate. So, it added like an unfortunate, like 40 additional people <laughs> to the call list. And so we went through that. that. Yeah. And, and we're just sort of like, here's the deal. Here's what happened. You know, we're hungry to got to go build something else. And they're like, what are you going to build? And we're like, we have no idea. <laughs> and so this <laughs> is like, trust me, let me keep your money. And so we, they all said like, listen, y'all have a great team, go build something else. And that set us out on this bizarre and wild 12 weeks of basically trying to go from insights and experiences we'd had in building Outbox into coming up with something totally different to build. Uh, We used a lot of the Stanford D School design thinking approaches. We built these little sprint teams where we'd basically run Monday through Thursday, investing a set of hypotheses. Um, On Friday, everyone would give a pitch, five slides. The fifth slide was, and here's something crazy. And almost every week when someone presented something crazy, we were like, let's do that thing. And so each week we kind of, you know, the first few weeks there's like super volatile y'all you're all over the place. And uh, we, Got a lot of excitement midway through that with this interesting approach which I share, not as a compliment to us, but to Mike Maples, who kind of shared it with us, which is he's interested in what he calls hyper trends, which he thinks are like hmm. nascent consumer trends that will likely shape the next decade. And his, one of his more recent ones, is, like three years ago, which is why he invested in Lyft, was his observation about a culture of non-ownership. And so he had some stat, it's something like when he was 18, 90% of 18 year olds had a driver's license. And today that number is like in the forties or something. Wow. It's like, people don't need to have that kind of permission anymore. They want a more detached relationship to things mm-hmm. so if you believe that to be true then you'd get excited about a lot of investments that play into that thesis and so the hypertrend trend thesis we were playing around was this idea of collaborative consumption which is a concept developed by yokai bankler a harvard economist and the observation is that um, technology has enabled the coordination of crowds in ways to outperform the brightest thinkers the history's ever known. Hmm. And so you get like 10,000 dumb people in a room using different technologies, and like they work together to beat the smartest man in the world in solving some particular problem. And he has lots of examples of this. So we were interested in that trend. We were interested in small business. We had met a lot of them, and we kind of mashed all that together and said... Could collaborative consumption say something about finance? Right. We thought it could, right. and that those are kind of the outer bounds of what we wanted to set out to create.
0: Hmm. And so uh, that was sort of what the point where we met. We both, uh, in some ways, were attacking this challenging and difficult market. I think that you call the the Fortune Five Million, um, and uh, and I think you sort of, you know, in some ways have uh, have just what yesterday announced the uh, sort of the, the the wrapping on the bow of that the sort of that experiment tell us sort of the the conclusion of Able
1: yeah so Able is the company that we built out of that which is a lender to small businesses um, so the product we offer a small business owner comes to us let's say they're a coffee shop and they want to Get a second roaster. They've applied to banks and can't get loans, and they've maxed out their credit cards, and they don't want another home equity line of credit. And we say, all right, well, let's underwrite you. Get to know about your business and your personal background, and we can make you an offer like right away to say, all right, here's $100,000 at 13% for a five-year note. Um, Or if you're willing to spend some more time and recruit some people that know you. To be lenders to you along with us, we can actually give you better terms, give you more money or lower rate or longer term, et cetera. And so in some ways, we were just trying to prove what is a very elementary and obvious observation, which is like, if I meet Eric on the internet and Eric asks me for money, I will know more about Eric's Mm -hmm. trustworthiness if I can talk to one person that knows Eric. It's yeah. Like, duh. It's like very <laughs> straightforward. And so that was the premise of it. Uh, we ran after it a bunch of different ways. We created a handful of products based on that thesis. We, um, Uh, maybe 12 months in put together a hundred million dollar line of credit to enable us to kind of fund up to like $125 million of loans and, uh, built a bunch of technology around understanding small businesses and credit models, et cetera. And so in the middle of that process, in the middle of last year, I began conversations with a few large incumbents that do huge volumes and have massive channel partnerships for, um, uh, pushing a lot of volume of loans and I negotiate a sale to Foundation, which is one of those really large online lenders that sells a bunch of different products, uh, which we just announced publicly yesterday. So yeah. it's a timely time for the chat. So that's the bow, and um, learned a ton from that. Really proud of what we were able to build, met and and help support um, more businesses than I can than I can remember. So it felt really uh, both valuable but also worthy
0: right and did it did it tie back to your I mean how did it deepen the way you, you earlier said that one of the big premises premises you took from Peter was the fact that corporations can do more good than sort of uh, than one might think it's the ultimate contribution to society how do you feel about that now looking at kind of the adventures you had and sort of the the end of sort of a you know almost a cl- close to a decade and some ways of of your life with across all these uh, these sort of iterations along the way. Well,
1: now that you've reminded me that I'm almost dead, it's nice to I know. reflect it's over. It's all over my misspent years. So I have remained committed to the thesis that the corporation is uh, an amazing entity which can change the world. The area of financial services, sadly, is one where law and public policy and government and lobbyists uh, exerts just an unbelievable influence on what products and services can be created and can be shipped. So I think like uh, if I were to think of a field like um, what's, this is kind of a funny exercise. It's actually kind of hard to find one let's go back in time and just say like uh bitcoin 18 Mm. months ago and there's a really talented bitcoin engineer and they were like i can either go build products in a private company or i can go work at the cftc and help regulators figure out what to do about bitcoin i'm like save yourself and save the world go build a great company Mm -hmm. and the nature of these uh, scary high scalable unknown technologies is that government takes a new interest in regulating those things and exerts massive influences on the types of goods and services that can make it to the market. And the nature of really large incumbent companies with huge war chests and and tens, hundreds of millions of dollars going to lobbyists are that it favors the incumbents, uh, which broadly is like really bad for startups. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, an interesting thing that's happened in the FinServe Financial services space is that Obama's very heavy regulation through the CFPB of financial services companies, including banks, actually spurred a lot of startups to be created because it said to banks, no, you can't do those things, or banks operated very conservatively. So right. Right. Uh, Donald Trump is elected with plans to basically eviscerate the CFPB. And in some ways, it's actually pretty bad for startups because. Um, it is now an open invitation again to the big banks to say you should go be able to innovate, um, which in the short term is mm-hmm. is bad for this narrow category of startups, but in the long term I think is actually great for the American consumer. At the end of the day, it's about uh, consumer protection is an important thing, and the balance that regulators and we as a society have to come up with is how do we maximize innovation in a way that lowers costs and increases human flourishing while keeping people safe. And that's a tough line to walk. And so I think I've kind of come full circle on this a little bit, which is no matter how successful a company I build in financial services or Bitcoin or high school education, I mean, literally all these things, um, they cannot be solved only by world-class CEOs building companies, because no matter how amazing your company is Mm -hmm. fighting or doing High school education reform there will be a half a million members of a national teachers union who is probably directly at odds with what you're doing and who's certainly funding political elected officials who oppose what you're doing so i think i went to the far end of the spectrum which is like build it you'll change the world Away from run for Congress, and I'm kind of back in the middle. Which is, I appreciate both sides.
0: Um, well, well, and and I know that you haven't yet announced what's the the next adventure, but I, there is a next adventure, and. Uh, You're going to have to come in and tell me what it is to be in the middle now uh, after those two sets of like, you know, pillar learnings of of what's the next adventure. So, so I'm I'm holding you to that.
1: It's a, uh, it's just a little barbecue stand, you know, live in Austin, just like, let's get out of this high risk Mm. business. You know, let's just start something simple, straightforward, grandfather's recipe. No, just kidding. Not at all. Uh, But I will come back. We'll, uh, we'll talk about it. I love that.
0: Listen, if you do that, I'm telling you there's an opportunity. So I don't eat meat. And the one thing I miss more than anything is barbecued pulled pork. And so if you could figure out that solution for me, and I think you're the guy to do it, um, I'm in. Whatever it takes, I'm in. I'll do the hold the signs. I'll run your political campaign. I'm in. Whatever it is, you just tell me. So, so we're talking like
1: barbecue pulled pork. Like 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 barbecue pulled tofu or something. You want a non-meat. I can't be like, come on. It can't be that shitty. Like I don't want <laughs> <bold> to eat pulled tofu. <laughs>
0: Delicious. So, uh,
1: delicious. All right. And All right. Stay list. tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah.
0: It, it sounds like the, it's already out of the barn. All right. So, we now we got to talk about your book because first off, I think it is, you know, I, I meet with tons of entrepreneurs and I have to tell you, your book is one of the only books I recommend, actually. And the reason I, I recommend it is because it's actually the stuff that everyone talks about as lore, but no one actually documents it. So I, I want you to, to give a little spiel on um, on what is backed. And then I want to hear why you decided to write it. So
1: the book is speaking to early stage founders that have an idea that they are considering raising capital Around. And the book is in two parts. The first part is a handbook for creating what we call a pitch deck, set of 10 to 15 slides that lay out the basic case for the business and kind of. Therefore, why someone would want to invest money in the business. And we collected a few hundred pitch decks and kind of put together some best practices and samplings of really great illustrative slides to make the cases for the different parts of product, market, team, etc.,
0: and most people um, don't share those off they don't, they're like it's one of those things if you, it's kind of like the notes where you would get someone's like old notes in high school or college where it's like if you got the notes from your fraternity brothers you were in but everyone else was screwed this is kind of the first I, you know, one of the few open source versions of, Hey, let me get the information out there and provide some commentary on the good, bad, and the ugly.
1: Yeah. So that was, that was kind of our hope here. I mean, we, we reached out to all these founders and said, Hey, we know your deck is, is confidential and private, but we really think this is something important for the community. And we're going to get some other great people in this thing. Would you consider letting us publish at least part of your deck? Um, there were people that said no, but we got a lot of yeses. And so um, really wanted to Do you want to
0: out anyone who who was like a real dick about it?
1: Like, Hey, you know what, what's wrong with you? Why won't you show Show your deck? So, um, (laughs) we had a few people say, I mean, so I think that the spirit of it was like, um, it was one actually kind of funny thing about it was even from some people that sent us their deck, when we went back to them and said like, what slides of the deck we wanted to include, a lot of people were actually pretty embarrassed about, the deck because it's usually an artifact from like 18 months ago. And so whether they think the design is crappy or like the numbers make it look like a crappy business, like a lot of them were sort of like embarrassed about it. We were like, uh, come on, man, let's just do it anyway. So, um, so that really, we really thought that was a great asset because uh, the, as you point out, these decks really are like a great currency that like we found that a lot of founders who were raising money successfully kind of had this little black market of, you know, five or 10 decks that they had used for their own inspiration. And we were like, come on, let's just like build this out because we think we're not, you know, we're not outing anyone. Right. We're actually just like building some best practices because the the takeaway from the pitch deck experience from, from my side is that a pitch deck is not something that it's not an artifact you create to sell something that you've already built. Right. It's right. actually a framework for understanding a business. Yep. And so when I meet with a founder who's like, I'm trying to raise money or I'm building this company, I'm like, well, send me your deck. Mm-hmm. They're like, Oh, I don't have one yet. I'm like, well, why not? They're like, well, I'm not raising money right now. And my point is like a deck is not only for raising money. A deck is the, Single best instance you have of articulating what it is that you're doing, yeah. And you need it, even if it's just you, not talking to anyone. And so I use Dex for you use it to raise money, certainly, but you use it to hire mm-hmm. people to like mm-hmm. sell them on what the vision is. You might use it with your early customers to explain what the company is. It's really relevant for a lot of reasons. I and so I
0: tell people. The thing about a book, actually, right? I think it's one of those things. where like I, you know, I don't know anything, and I'm like, listen, a book is a good framework to learn. <laughs> like just mm. the process of in the same way. I think the deck, any of these things where you actually create something forces you that you're going to show to other people, I think forces a level of yeah. discipline that we don't often do. So I, I think it's an interesting sense of the deck as a, a vehicle to force you to actually learn something to be able to communicate it. Um, it's an interesting framework.
1: Massive. Yeah. So our, our first day of this course, uh, I'm teaching at University of Texas in a few weeks. Um, each student will get 12 sheets of paper, and they will have to use a Sharpie on those 12 sheets of paper to sketch a deck Mm. and around an idea that they come to class with. And they'll say things like, well, how could I create the team slide? Because I don't really have anyone on the team yet. And my point is, okay, well, let's imagine what needs to be on the team slide to be persuasive. So draw some like Head shapes and make up some names, and let's list what the titles would be of the team you would need. Interesting. So, you're going to have the head of product, and you're going to have someone who's an engineer and a designer, whatever it is. So, let's like use this 12 sheets of paper, some with giant white spaces on them to remind us what it is we actually need to do. So, what's the story I want to tell? Right. So, that's the first half of the book. Second half of the book says, now that you have this deck. What are you going to do with it in order to raise capital around it? And we call that running a roadshow and try to take a bit more like a human approach. We have this uh, a concept called um, intro, uh, invite, delight, connect, uh, which is basically trying to take kind of a more human approach to sales where you're building rapport directly with the investor as opposed to kind of treating them like a mercenary Customer that you're trying to sell a product to. And so, um, one interesting piece is we saw a lot of decks where, let's say, a company was like really amazing and like had raised a lot of money and was like very successful. In some cases, their deck was actually really bad. Hmm. And that was a case where they just had this super charismatic founder and like he didn't care or she didn't care about the deck and was just like a great salesperson. It was like, wow, I want to be in on that person. Interesting. There were other companies that had an amazing deck but raised no money. Hmm. And that could be like, there's no charisma. They don't sell the story well, or they like ran a really bad roadshow. So equally important to the beautiful artifact you create is now that you have this thing, what is your process for selling this thing, which is usually the form of a sale of a security of equity in your company, uh, to some set of yet to be defined people yep. that you hope to get money from.
0: And uh, and I, the question that you know is, was, why did you decide to write it? I mean, it's not like you were you you had. You have young kids, I think, at the time. Yeah, young kids, and you've got a startup, and you're a busy dude. Uh, why did you decide that a book is the thing that you wanted to add to your, your the complexity of your already complex life?
1: Well, we are really accidental authors. Uh, <laughs> my really good friend Evan Loomis, co-author of the book. We have been friends for a long time, and we kind of two things came together to lead us to think about writing a book. The first was we were both taking several meetings a week with green young founders that wanted to raise money mm-hmm. and they're like you guys have raised money would you help us give us feedback on the deck and that meeting would take an hour you'd vomit all this information on them orally, and it was just like really inefficient to do that. It wasn't that helpful to them and wasn't scalable for us right. to take all those meetings. So we said, okay, let's try to write down some of the stuff that we're thinking about. We didn't really have very high views of ourselves. We didn't think we really knew that much until we met all these people, yeah. which then actually showed us that we actually knew a lot, <laughs> at least right. relative to all these other people. Yeah. Yeah. So, we, so that was the first point was like, hey, how do we get out of taking meetings? That's the first point. The second point was um, we really like hanging out yep. and we kind of wanted a project to work on together and said, hey, if we kind of commit to do this together, that will be like a weekly touch point for us collaborating. Um, and uh, it was. it was, it was really fun to work on it together. It's awesome, and so one
0: of the things that w- that you shared with me that I thought was perhaps one of the most uh, amazing uh, artifacts that I've seen around the book launch itself was your 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 launch plan that you call launching back ten strategies to reach the stratosphere. Um, and And in it, you talk a lot about how you were going to invest your own capital into it. Um, most people many people don't even think about this concept of like actually launching the book as a as like you have to build this plan around it. How did you come to to realizing that there was so much more than just writing a great book to sort of actually launching it as a product?
1: Yeah, so we were writing this book, and we didn't really know what it was going to be. we mm-hmm. didn't know anything about publishing we didn't have an agent. We were like, you know maybe this would just be a set of like PDFs that we could email to people. We kind of had no idea what it was going to be. And so we um, had the whole thing designed, like ready to like go print at a Kinkos. And then I was like, let's just email it to Harvard for kicks. Yeah. So I emailed it to Harvard and they were like, the acquisitions committee, which is like people looking for new products. They were like, we've been looking for something around pitches. This is perfect timing. <laughs> We'd love it. It's amazing. And we're like, what? This is crazy. Yeah. And yeah. so um, so so the the questions they ask you are basically how many did you sell of the last book you wrote, which is difficult as a first time author. And then they say like, how many Twitter followers do you have and how many emails are on your email list. And so they're really not that interested in the content of the book and they're much more interested in how many books are you going to sell? Right. Which was very foreign to me. So we put together the best case we could, which was like, you know, here's our social media stuff and here's kind of a plan. And they came to us with a, uh, this can be public. They can just an offer $50,000 as an advance for the book. Yep. Now, a book advance is a weird calculation of basically their projected royalties. Right. So it's not about them being generous. It's actually about them building a model to say how many of this book do we think that we will sell mm-hmm. and they try to give you the advance about to match the royalties based on their projected sales. But my assumption was that they build that model because they know how to sell books <laughs> right. and they put budget against it. Right. Yep. So like for right. every book dollar they sell, they get 80 cents yep. roughly. Yep. So it's like in theory, they should spend 79 cents yep. per book dollar yep. to get the 80 cents. Right. But it's like, doesn't work that way at all. Yeah. So book marketing is crazy. is very poorly done. I'm amazed at like how weak most publishers are at how to market books. And, um, we got some advice from a handful of different friends that were successful authors and they were like 50 K that's ridiculous. Let's build a plan, come back to it and demand like triple. We're like, Oh my gosh, that sounds aggressive. (laughs) So we were like, okay, we put this plan together, basically say to the publisher, okay, here are a bunch of ways that we think we're going to go crush this. I know like we're first time authors but like, we're going to market the crap out of this thing. It's going to be awesome. And we pitched um, and they doubled the advance. Hmm which was really cool. Yeah. And so, so, but then the bizarro thing about this is like, you know, it really comes back to what are your goals right. for the right. book? Right. And we were not writing it to make money. Um, yep. If you're setting out to make money, stop yeah. immediately. Right. Right? Don't. Yeah. Really, yeah. No. Um, so we weren't setting out to make money. So what were our goals? We we had largely overlapping goals. Um, we wanted to work together. We wanted to learn. We wanted to uh, learn about a new industry, which was like publishing and media. We wanted to meet a bunch of entrepreneurs through the book writing process, and then we had like this wish list of like cool people we might meet once we wrote the book. Cause you like get invited to do stuff. It was kind of like, mm-hmm. so kind of it was just like, okay, make this a cool splashy book. You want to sell some copies because, oh yeah, the other goal we had was we wanted to be able to write another book in the future. Yep. So that means you got to like perform decently well uh, book sales. So from the, from our perspective, it's like, we basically assume we're not going to make any money anyway. So it's like, if we're getting a hundred thousand dollars for a book, and the goal is to be able to write another book or the goal is to sell a bunch of your book. You're actually incented to spend all of that money yeah, in, in marketing the book. Every penny, right? Um, right. Which even though you don't get, you get $0 per book until you hit your earnout. And then you only get 20 cents per book later. So the market's kind of crazy, but that was part of this proposal that we came back to the publisher with. It was like, listen, here's the marketing plan that we have. We're going to spend some of our own money and actually hard dollars against marketing this thing. I promise we're going to sell a bunch more books. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they bought the story and we executed pretty well on the strategy. And um uh, hit the the warranted higher level book sales projections. Actually, exceeded them based on how they had backed out the advance. Hmm. And
0: what was the most successful uh, approach? I, I know you know in the in the strategy you list off things like you created a a podcast. I remember you were telling me about a Facebook Live strategy that was uh, shocking to even me. W- which were the things that you saw the most success from
1: this uh, launch process you went through? So I think the Sadly, and this is pretty sad, um, which kind of comes full circle to like why publishers are actually right in asking things like how many people are on your email list, (laughs) um, but like direct emails Mm -hmm. to people about the book, um, with some teaser content in there and maybe giving them some incentive. Like if they buy the book, they get access to some special, cool, additional content. Um, is our attributable highest highest CTR, highest purchase rate of any of our marketing strategies. Interesting. It's a little biased Mm because we mostly knew the people and these were just people like built up at our own CRM tools. But I mean the world of book sales is so crazy. If you can convince, I mean, to hit a number one title at least in a subcategory on Amazon, it's like it might be like selling a thousand books in like two weeks would, would put you there. Yep. And so we're not talking about really that many people um, to become a bestseller, which is just a commentary that people don't read, I think, in the country. Right. So right. Um, yeah. you really don't have yeah. to have that many sales. So that was a piece of it. Um for us, like we we spent some time thinking about, you know, we've created this physical artifact, which is the book, but a lot of our assets that we've created are digital. Um, deck templates and Excel model templates and um, suggested websites that you want to visit. Like we like the idea of the book because it shows off the printed pitch decks well, but there's a lot of stuff that really should be digital. So we did do a, um, we did something with AppSumo around like a bundle where people got, it was, it was a free bundle where they got like a chapter of the book and then a bunch of pitch decks and stuff. And so that then got us, I don't know, 9,000 email addresses. And then you can kind of market to them on like book discounts. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a hacky thing. Um, and then we did have a number of partnerships um, with some publishers. So we did some HBR Live stuff on Facebook Live where the content we had was very suitable to coaching and teaching entrepreneurs who are trying to raise money. And yep. There are a lot of or other organizations that have those kinds of events and are sort of looking for that kind of content. So some of those were, were okay. We were just trying to like get the message out to a lot more people. Um, and the one, I think a funny, bizarre area for this is uh, getting yeah. Amazon reviews and getting yep. book blurbs. So book blurbs, um, we have a handful of like very famous people like Barbara Corcoran and Adam Grant, etc. cetera. Um, who gave blurbs for our book, and I won't name names of any of these people, but many of them were like, "I'd love to write a blurb. Please send me a suggested blurb, <laughs> right. and I'll sign off." Right. Which is like so bizarre to me. Yeah. So weird. Um, but another funny thing was, yeah, we sent. Um, so we just send the blurbs to Harvard Press, and they like kind of did the jacket design about where the blurbs go, and one of the people. So they picked like one for the cover, two for the back, and the rest are in the inside jacket. And someone who was in the inside jacket wrote us and they were like, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe that you didn't put me on the cover. You know, you really have to know who your people are. And I'm just like, oh my God, bro, you didn't even write this thing. Like, I can't believe you're even paying attention to this right now. So. That was kind of a funny world, um, but the yeah. I think, I do think there's some element where in some cases in publishing, I think the, the good guys can win. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did We hustled to mm-hmm. have some friends uh, seed Amazon reviews, where we got them to pre-purchase the book because you've an authorized purchase on Amazon, that like, makes it a more valuable review. And you know, probably 20 or 30 of those were friends of ours that had the book been crappy. Um, they would have given us five stars anyway, <laughs> right, right. but we're now like a hundred, over a right. five five-star reviews. And, you know, at least two thirds of those are people that we don't know. Yeah. And to see actual customers that you don't know, read the book and say, man, I've really been waiting for a book like this is just Some little sense of like, I mean, not that we won, not that it's really competition, but like good guys that work hard, that create content that's actually valuable. You know, there's some parts of the industry that rewards that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that we need. So many of the books, especially in and around entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. are um, self-serving. Well, well, they're self-serving. And one one quick story. So I later talked to the number one business press, which Mm -hmm. is not Harvard, actually. It's a Mm -hmm. different one. I won't name it. And they were like, well, do you have another book that you'd like to write? And I was like, well, I've got a few ideas. And they were like, well, how does that book relate to how you make money? Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, it's not directly, you know, but I I find it really interesting. And I think the content would be really valuable. And this press told me that their policy is they will not publish a book for, they will not publish the book of an author if the book sales do not directly drive revenue. For the author, like outside of the book revenue, interesting. And hmm. so, as I unpack hmm. that a little bit, it's it's very interesting and probably a wise business decision of this publisher to say, right? For example, I want a business consultant who writes a book, yeah. So that when they sell the book, people call him and and hire him because that aligns our incentives. But then I was so naive about this. I was like, right. books are about knowledge, about sentence, transfer, yep. like big ideas. But no, books are about sales. Oh, come on. And what are you um, about obviously a lot of presses operate in different ways, yeah. but but yeah. I, I, I think there's some middle ground there, which is just having like an expanded business card. Like a lot of those books are total junk and they sell a bunch of copies, and that's like sad. Mm-hmm. But I've seen really smart people write really good content with no eye to marketing. And then mm-hmm. the thing is you've built something beautiful, right? No one reads it.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. And I, th- I think, you know, to your point, I think a lot of this is, as you said, you set out with an opportunity to work together, an opportunity to provide knowledge. And I think at the end of the day, you know, would you see yourself differently? Do people see you differently now that then after the book has come out? Do people lead? I-, I was reading somewhere that someone described you, not first as an entrepreneur, but author and entrepreneur as in a, <laughs> in a bio. Is that is that sort of weird for you to see a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the especially strange part is the best-selling uh, appellation in front of author, which the whole thing is just like, yeah. if you knew how many books it took to be a bestseller, you would right. not think right. that's impressive. But yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a real, you know, that, that's a, um, I mean, I, look, I graduated from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. Those are like bizarre credentials. In most places I go, it's more interesting to people that I'm like a bestselling author. Yeah. than those other credentials. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. I don't think that's the right way to think about it, but yeah. So you establish that credibility and then it helps you write the next book and then you can teach and you can kind of build all kinds of things. And so I do think generally that arena, of like how do you become a, uh, uh, an influential public person who is passionate about communicating ideas is, is it certainly something I've not thought very much about, but I think it's something that very few people think about and um, it's a real opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's a um, Harvard Business Review piece on called like the idea entrepreneur, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, okay, so ideas give birth to ventures, but like outside of that venture, how are you doing things related to that idea to advance the idea? Are you um, take like uh, take like um, I don't know, well uh, Chick Fil A full circle for us here. Yeah, the breaded nugget. Um, Chick Fil A, obviously sells a crazy amount of chicken. They do all sorts of things related to their core mission. They run a foundation. They run high school training programs. They created a coffee roaster. They write books. They do all this stuff that's about advancing ideas that they're super passionate about. So profit becomes the condition for the growth and continued success of the business. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like only the sufficient, not it's necessary, not sufficient condition right. for actually influencing on behalf of those ideas. And right. that's actually hard to figure out, but really important to wrestle through. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And did, did, has this changed the way people see you? I mean, obviously you're now teaching at, at Texas, this at Austin this year. Do some of these things open new opportunities for you that were surprising to you?
1: Well, I got these um like one inch shoe inserts and so people kind of look up to me a little bit more, yeah. it kind of like a power pose thing. Amy I Cuddy, still only like, look up to you. Big on that. Um, so has it changed? I mean, I don't know. I think my friends definitely like roll their eyes a little bit more. Um, I think, I don't know, like like people that I already knew are like, were excited about it and, and supportive yeah. of the project. It definitely doing public things like this podcast or a book or a TV show or whatever open you up to the world of like public influence mm-hmm. where you're communicating with people that you, you know, have never met. Mm-hmm. And that's its own kind of weird, interesting, cool thing. Um, we got a great photo of a stay at home mom who had two young kids in Atlanta and had been working, working, working on creating this little bakery business that she wanted to get off the ground. And she sent us this picture of the book, get back open with like, 50 colored post-it notes in it with <laughs> jotted notes down on the side and, and said that she just got her first like small investment from someone else to make this bakery possible. And that's the kind of like, as a author, you know, I only need two or three of those stories right. to right. affirm like, man, this was, this was really valuable. It's those little stories about people that, uh, but for the book, you would not have gotten the chance to directly help. That keep me, you know, waking up in the morning, getting fired up about what I get to do
0: well sir thank you so much for the time this is awesome and I really appreciate it and I think this may actually be entertaining for other people which is uh, it's entertaining for us which is good
1: good well hey um, our moms wives and uh, each other will enjoy it so if we uh, solve the listing needs for four or six people uh, it's a win and maybe a few others but hey this is a ton of fun to be here thanks for having me
0: you're welcome and I'm still I'll still support you when you run for city council next time too <laughs> <laughs> well we'll
1: uh, let's hopefully we, uh, we get a victory
0: in the next one campaign manager eric custer signing off from man evan